Folks, Mackenzie Lambert here, your host for Making the Movies, where we look at everything from art house to grindhouse, mainstream to obscure, the forgotten, and the unforgettable. On this episode, we will be looking at select films from Canadian-born filmmaker Lindsay Shantef. On the docket are Devil Doll, Million Eyes of Sumeru, Clegg, aka The Bullet Machine, and The Killing Edge. Before we look at the films, let's look at the man himself. Shantef was born on November 5th, 1935, in Toronto, Canada. No details on his family or formative years. He did make his filmmaking debut with the western The Hired Gun in 1959. After that film's release, Shantef would move to England where he would make the majority of his films. On occasion, he would receive offers from the big studios. Uh, There was Columbia Pictures after the release of Devil Doll, Also, 20th Century Fox following his Bond-style spy thriller, Licensed to Kill. Shantef rejected both offers because he was unsatisfied with the terms being offered. We previously discussed one of his films, Number One of the Secret Service, a Bond parody starring Nicky Henson and featuring John Pertwee of Doctor Who. That was in episode 31 when we were looking at volume 2 of the Grindhouse Experience box set. Shantef would pass away on March 6, 2006, the last day of shooting for his film, Angels, Devils, and Men. Let's dive into the movies. Spoilers ahead. We got movies! Terrifyingly human, plaything of the devil, capable of such evil that only a cage can restrain its diabolical desires. It walks. It talks. In Berlin, 1948, find me. It sees. It kills on blood-chilling command by thought control. Hugo, she said you were ugly. But somehow he's put a man's life into that doll. Somehow, the malevolent mystery of the devil doll must be solved before more lives are lost to the monstrous power that manipulates it. Look into it. So deep and rich and red and warm. He's calling me, Mom. Please make it But there are no obvious answers, no mechanical tricks, nothing but sheer horror that grows and grows and explodes into violent, murderous action. You'll learn the dummy's sinister secret only at the very end of this most unusual suspense thriller. But 
for maximum shock sock. See it from the beginning. Devil Dog. The great Vorelli is a famed hypnotist and ventriloquist. He has gained much success working with his dummy Hugo. Skeptical reporter Mark English wants to see if Varelli is a legitimate phenomenon, so he invites his girlfriend Marianne with him to an exhibition. English wants her to volunteer herself for Varelli's hypnosis. Varelli's show begins with him hypnotizing a man and convincing him he is about to be executed before snapping his fingers, bringing the man back to consciousness. Then Varelli calls for a volunteer, which Marianne answers. Varelli hypnotizes her and tells her she is an amazing dancer. A professional dancer is brought out. Both the dancer and Marianne put on a twist dancing show. Then Varelli brings her back to consciousness. English tells Marianne he's impressed with her moves, but she swears she isn't much of a dancer. English wants to do a story on Varelli and his abilities. He coaxes Marianne to invite Varelli to a soiree. Varelli already intended to be there due to recognizing Marianne as a wealthy heiress. He begins his scheme to put Marianne under his control, then have her gradually transfer the wealth to him. Oddly, Hugo the Dummy has other plans. While not the first film of a possessed ventriloquist dummy, it is rare that the dummy is not the focus of the, of the film. The mystery of the possessed dummy is a subplot to the main plot of Varelli's scheme. This helps the film stand out compared to others like Dead of Night and Magic. While the film was featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000, the film garnered its share of positive reception. Blockbuster Video, Leonard Moulton, and Famous Monsters of Filmland all praised the film for being a simple yet effective chiller. Devil Doll was Shantef's first film for Britain. Originally, his Canadian colleague, Sidney J. Fury, was to direct. Instead, he suggested Sean Teff, whom he guided and assisted through the production. Apparently, the film was slapped with an X rating unless Sean Teff performed some quick edits. I can only surmise the rating was due to a few shots of partial nudity that could have accidentally shown more than what we saw, notably Sandra Dorn nude under a blanket. Brian's Halliday was the villainous Vorelli, he plays up the cold, calculating persona of a man who is in complete control of any situation he is in. Halliday would appear in a few other films in the 1960s, Voodoo Bloodbath also for Shantef, The Projected Man, and the documentary The Face of War. William Sylvester played the American reporter Mark English. English has a bit of snarky charm in the beginning before he realizes how powerful Varelli is. Sylvester would be a regular on TV, but appearing in films like Gorgo and 2001 A Space Odyssey. The supporting cast is rounded out by Karel Stepanek, Yvonne Romain, and Sandra Dorn. If you're expecting a movie that commits to telling a spooky story of a ventriloquist dummy, you may be disappointed. That is a small part of the narrative. If you're looking for a thriller involving the supernatural, then you'll get more out of Devil Doll. Despite being on Mystery Science Theater 3000, it actually isn't that bad of a movie. Throughout history, many have planned to dominate the world by torture, terror, and unscrupulous cunning. But none was so ruthless as the woman they called Sumeru. So now tell me what you want. You. At the moment, we need a man for a specific task. 
And if I refuse? Then you will be killed. In the war against mankind to achieve our aim, a world ruled by women. Sumeru, the beautiful brain behind a dream. A dream that becomes a nightmare for any man who crosses her. Listen, whoever you are, get out of here. Get out of here while you can. She's mad! These are the lovely ladies of Sumeru's court. To meet them is fascinating. To know them, fatal. Frankie Avalon. George Nader. Look at me. Whatever else I am. I am a woman. Oh, yes, yes. Shirley Eaton. As Sumeru. My lady. Oh, no. Great day. I didn't even like her when she was alive. Guest star Wilfred Hyde White. Klaus Kinski. Tell me something. What's a rotten little girl like you doing in a nice business like this anyway? Why do you hate me? I'm just a girl like any other. Any other what? Scorpion? And introducing Maria Rom. funeral procession is carrying the body of the wealthiest man in China. When both the casket and the next of kin reach a bridge, a bomb is detonated. All of the heirs to the man's wealth were killed in the explosion. This was the handiwork of the villainous Sumeru and her army of henchwomen. Sumeru has a plan to make women the rulers of the world. She already has agents infiltrating cities and governments, making connections with members of industry and politicians. Any who fail her or try to leave her organization are swiftly eliminated. Her most important rule, never fall in love with men. Agents Nikki West and Tommy Carter have been granted vacation by the CIA. Just moments after arriving at their destination, they are greeted by Sir Anthony Baysbrook of British Intelligence. Baysbrook wants the agents to prevent the assassination of President Bung of Sinosia. At the same time, Sumeru intends to use Agent West to help commit that very assassination. Sumeru was created by Sex Rahmer post-World War II, but the character was not Chinese due to the BBC not wanting to offend the Republic of China, one of the UK's strongest allies during the war. She first appeared in radio serials in the 1940s before the novels in the 1950s, with the last one published in 1956. Around the same time, Ian Fleming published Casino Royale, the first of his James Bond novels. Dr. No, the first Bond film, was released in 1962 and would lead to dozens of films for that British super spy. Million Eyes of Sumeru was released in 1967 and would be a mix of supervillain melodrama and James Bond parody. 
Sumeru would be the villainess, while West and Carter would be the bumbling agents sent to stop her. Despite this seemingly unbreakable discipline by Sumeru, her henchmen can't help but fall for Weston Carter. Million Eyes of Sumeru has all the trappings of a Bond film. Exotic locales like Rome and Hong Kong, a megalomaniacal villain with a worldwide scheme, preposterous weaponry like a calcification serum, or gimmicky gadgets like a purse concealing a knife. The film may very well be the biggest film in Sean Teff's career as a director. He never had such access to a cast or crew this size before or after, let alone the, this quality of talent either. George Nader plays Nick West, the studlier of the two agents. He made his feature film debut in the cult classic Robot Monster. He appeared in numerous films and TV shows. The film Nowhere to Go is noted for starring Nader and being the film debut of Maggie Smith. Frankie Avalon, Agent Carter, was a heartthrob. He made his name in music with hits like Why and Venus. He jumped to films, often beach films with Annette Funicello. Other films of note featuring Avalon include Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine, Grease, and Casino. Shirley Eaton relished playing the role of Sumeru. She would reprise the role for the sequel, The Girl from Rio. Eaton remembers the role fondly. I did enjoy being the Wicked Lady Sumeru in two rather bad films, which I had not had the chance to do before. Shantef would be replaced on The Girl from Rio with another infamous low-budget filmmaker, Jess Franco. Ah! Eaton may be best remembered for being painted head-to-toe in gold paint in the Bond classic Goldfinger. Klaus Kinski gets to exercise his comedic chops as President Bong. He's absolutely hilarious as the drunk womanizing president of Sinonzia. His filmography reads like a list of some of the best art house and exploitation films ever made. For a few dollars more, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, Death Smiles at a Murderer, Fitzcarraldo, the Herzog remake of Nosferatu, and Crawl Space. Wilfred Hyde White plays Sir Anthony Baysbrook of British Intelligence. He gives the role that cherio English chin-up attitude. The man worked in dozens of movies, starting in 1934's Josser on the Farm through 1983's Fanny Hill. Despite the feelings of Eaton towards the film, I really enjoyed it. It's a pitch-perfect Bond parody of the Connery era, same as number one of the Secret Service spoof the Roger Moore era. You have strong acting talent, visually appealing locales, and the -the over-the-top spy antics. This is one to watch without any quantum of irony. It's one big kiss-off. An ex-cop tangles with an ex-hooker. They are into murder. This cool cat calls the shots. The bullet machine. He's a clean-cut killer who fights dirty. He can hack it. She's a hired gun who's knocking off his clients. She knows all the ways to skin a cat. Those prostitutes hate men. Why not her? And for enough money, she'd do anything. She's taking on the bullet machine. I'm Harry Clegg, 
sent from heaven to protect you. He's buying a lot of punishment. Gentlemen, he's all yours. There's plenty of feedback in the bullet machine. She said to tell you she's back in training. Can anyone else help you? I've got a very nervous hand. Talk. Or I pull the trigger. He follows every lead. He gets every message. You are very stupid. And very persistent. And shortly you will be very dead. It's all in a day's work. He can take it. to do. Your time has come. Cross his palm, he'll do anything. Double cross it, he doesn't mess around. Who's behind the blonde behind the gun? Somebody's triggered the bullet machine. Clegg opens with our quote-unquote hero, Harry Clegg, on his way back from failing an assignment. The men who put him on that assignment catch up to him and intend to kill him. One is preparing a burial spot while the other has him at gunpoint. With his wits and an overpowered lighter, Clegg manages to take down his would-be assassins. This is a nice opening since it shows the quick thinking and resourcefulness of the Clegg character. The main plot focuses on a small group of wealthy business owners they receive messages informing them of their impending death. One calls upon Clegg to be his bodyguard, but he is murdered shortly after taking Clegg under his employ. Clues lead Clegg to the other men targeted with the letters. Here, Clegg comes up with a scheme to offer a high rate uh, to these men of industry for his protection. He tries to keep them alive long enough for him to collect before they are inevitably killed. This makes Clegg an enduring character because there is a sick joy in seeing the exploitative wealthy being exploited themselves. The climax may be anticlimactic, but it is appropriate for the Clegg character. One scene has Clegg tied to a tree. There, he is beaten by a pair of homosexual henchmen. They don't play to the flamboyant stereotype. They're closer to Camp Freddy in the Italian job. This was a year before the duo of Kid and Went in Diamonds Are Forever. The progressive nature to villains is common with Chantef, he had a transgender henchman in number one of the Secret Service, after all. The scene also was one of the hardest to watch, not for any violence, but for the film's use of natural lighting in an English autumn. You can barely make out what is happening. Thankfully, the scene doesn't last for too long. The trailer for Clegg had a dark, gritty tone. Seeing lead Gilbert win with a side-loading Sten machine gun is a badass sight to behold. There was a Git Carter vibe, yet the film itself is very much a comedy with hints of action sprinkled throughout. The fist fights are shot tightly, and the sound adds some palpability, reminding me of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Clegg and Susie never actually face off as the trailer implies. Before I saw the film years ago, there was barely any reviews for it. I was able to go into it pretty much blind. That helped keep my expectations in check and made the revelation of the film's humor a pleasant surprise. 
Director Lindsay Shantep does his best with a limited budget. What he lacks in production value, he makes up for with decent action, comedy, and some scantily clad lasses. The lower-than-normal budget look would be the case for Shantep's films after this. This is the only screenwriting credit for writer Lewis Hagleton. It's a shame because this script is very clever and witty with how it handles the Clegg character. The music by Paul Ferris is a blessing and a curse. The score often repeats itself, playing the same music over and over. However, the main theme is a great piece of work, blending organ, guitar, and brass. Clegg in a manner similar to George Nader handling Nick West in Million Eyes of Sumeru. Clegg is a bumbler who manages to get the handle of a situation by any means at his disposal. We get some narration and props to get an idea of the Clegg character. The holes in his shoes, his car needs to be cranked in order to start, and he can't afford bullets for his gun indicate the man has fallen on hard times, giving him a degree of sympathy from the audience. He rarely leaves a fight without taking a beating himself. Wynn appeared on the Patrick Troughton era of Doctor Who, as well as Torchwood. Gary Hope plays Francis Wildman. His character remains a mystery since he plays a big part in the main plot. His other credits include the Max Headroom TV movie and Romeo is Bleeding with Gary Oldman. Gilly Grant was Susie the Slag, the prostitute-turned-hit-woman. She does bear her assets on occasion, but that's part of her arsenal. She appeared in a few of the carry-on films, comedies that heavily utilized double entendre and innuendo. Clegg may be low budget, but it is still an entertaining film nonetheless. Wynn puts in a charismatic performance as the title character. There's plenty of wit and some good action scenes. It used to be available on YouTube, but physical copies can be bought for a fair price. Johnson is one of the few people left alive in the post-apocalypse. He was in a tunnel when the bombs fell and wiped out a majority of humanity. His goal is to make it home and see if his wife and child are still alive. The radiation fallout is only one of his obstacles. The elements of winter and summer, he is nearly murdered by a knife-wielding maniac. Then there are the Terminators, 
remnants of the military that have rounded up survivors to grow food for them. The Killing Edge is very low budget, shot on VHS, post-apocalypse action. I think immediately of the aftermath, uh, which I mentioned in the previous episode for Bruce Campbell with Alien Apocalypse. A man wandering the apocalypse who runs into threats to his life, slavers, raiders, and radiation poisoning. The execution of the film leaves much to be desired. Most of the plot summaries I've read bring up killer robots. Apparently, when bad guys are referred to as Terminators, people think they're T-800s. For killer robots, they go down pretty easily. Uh, They emote and have poor aim. I doubt these Terminators were killer robots because nothing I saw gave me indication that they were actually robots. There were a few moments where there was no sound other than ambience and rustic exteriors. One scene in particular shows the knife murderer killing another survivor. I was reminded of Tarkovsky's Stalker. Uh, This was the most effective scene by Sean Teff in Killing Edge because it elevated the film above the means of execution. The Killing Edge was the far end of the filmography for Sean Teff in the mid-1980s. He only made five films after this one, many of them under the same conditions as this film. This was a far cry from his bigger productions like Devil Doll or Million Eyes of Sumeru. Bill French is the lead, Steve Johnson. He may be one of the worst action heroes of the 1980s. The people under his watch are killed. He barely gets out alive after his first encounter with Terminator 7. French appeared on the late 80s Mission Impossible and the sci-fi show Sliders. Al Lampert stood out as Terminator 7. Uh, This particular bad guy uh, is memorable because he looks like he's wearing a dress over his military fatigues. Uh, not only that, I'm not that there's anything wrong with that. Maybe that's a means of luring out other survivors. The glee he shows when he kills a survivor is hilarious for its unintentional comedy. Lampert actually appeared in Star Wars A New Hope. He's the guy that was next to Lord Vader after Vader reprimands Princess Leia. Matthew Waterhouse had uh, the bit part as the knife murderer, a major part in the film's best scene. Waterhouse was a recurring actor for Doctor Who, appearing with Tom Baker and Peter Davison. He was Adric from the planet Alzarius. The Killing Edge is a film that needs a better format. The film on VHS look is amateurish for someone of Shantef's experience. Yet, as we've seen with Ted V. Mickles and Ray Dennis Steckler, that seems to be the case for cult filmmakers from the 60s and 70s when they try to continue to make films in the late 80s, early 90s. I can't really recommend this film because it is such a low-quality offering with few redeeming elements. Save for the ambience scene and Al Lampert, there's really no reason to go out of your way to see this film. And that wraps up this episode of Mac and the Movies. Thanks for listening. Next time, it will be our annual end-of-the-year show. I'll be reviewing three alternative Christmas movies, plus I'll share some of my favorite video games and movies from 2020, That'll drop on Thursday, December 24th, Christmas Eve. Then I'll be taking my hiatus until mid-January with the first episode for Mac and the Movies in 2021. If you like this content and want to support the program, consider a one-time donation via PayPal, Venmo, or Cash App. I have a subscribe star where for $1.99 a month, you can guide the creative direction of the show. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Minds, and Instagram. I have a BitChute channel as well. I'll be joining Parlor in the next few days. Links in the description below. 
Until next time, this is Mackenzie Lambert for Mech in the Movies. Take care and stay safe. Thank you.